Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today is our, I don't know, seventh annual, probably. Seventh annual is what I'm going to go with. Top 10 Albums of the Year Podcast. This time we're actually going to talk about some shows as well. But what we do is 10 honorable mentions and then 10 best albums of 2022. Thanks for hanging out with me. Let's fucking do this shit. Now, as always, there is no guest. I'm just going to speak off the cuff by myself. These are my opinions. I wanted to first recap the podcast year. We had a great year on the show, thanks to amazing guests from The Interrupters, Useless ID, CKY, or 96 Bitter Beings, Run DMC, can you fucking believe it, Berserk, Dead Fucking Serious, A Wilhelm Scream, The Domestics, and comedian Stephen Lynch. Now, we only had nine episodes this year, but holy shit, were they top shelf quality. I particularly think that the episodes with DMC and Kevin Bavona from The Interrupters are some of my best ever. So I really, really enjoyed this. I'm very grateful to my guests. There were so many more that I was trying to line up and scheduling is just difficult. It's hard to produce host and edit for two different podcasts while trying to be a musician and just live my goddamn life. So I push pause on it and I'll return to it when I have a few interviews up the sleeve. Now, a few music releases. In February, my friends and I released a full-length acoustic cover of The Decline by No Effects. And I had done this in the past by myself, but this was special because it included vocals from Emily, from the Punk Rockette podcast, and Ian, the punk cellist. Jerry spent some time in Michigan. A 20-year vacation after all he had a dime. A dime is worth a lot more in Detroit. A dime in California, a $20 fine. This was actually recorded as a three-piece. Again, it's the entire song. In the past, I had cut off the outro because I just sang the, the trombone part in the song. Da, na, na, na. And this time, I did the whole extended outro because uh, Ian could play that on the cello. Sounded really fucking cool. Did an amazing job. I'm so happy and grateful to my friends for that. So uh, if you haven't yet, check out my cover of The Decline on my YouTube channel. It's also on take92.bandcamp.com or just take92.com will take you right there. All of these releases will be found on that page. In April, my band Dead Fucking Serious re-released our 2012 EP, which was half of a split. It is now called The Reclamation, which is one of the songs. And I thought it made sense because we're kind of taking our half back and putting it back out, so reclaiming it as a, an EP just by itself. Paul Miner from Death by Stereo had done a fantastic job on our album, and so we had him remix and remaster these old crappy tracks that we recorded spontaneously in 2012 after four years of a hiatus with one practice. He made it sound fucking great, so shout out to Paul. In June, DFS dropped our third full-length album, Clandemic. We actually recorded the basic tracks there with Paul Miner in Orange County, and Death by Stereo drummer Mike Cambra, as well as singer Ephraim Scholes, both appeared on the record. Plus, Lou Collar from Sick of It All. And it, it was just an absolute honor, not 
just these collaborators, but also one of our original members, Ben Polanski, came back and played the bass on this. And, and Evan from The Illusionist, Streetlight Cardiacs, Bat Fanatic Podcast, he came down with us at the recording session, and it, it was just fucking great. He appears on the last song on the album as well. So many talented people, so many people I look up to and friends, and it's the culmination of all of my anxiety from the pandemic, all, all the songs that I wrote during that period in 2020. And so this took something horrible and incredibly negative, really just intense uh, psychological burden and turned it into a, a truly bucket list experience. It's maybe my favorite album I've ever made. And so I can't put that on the top 10 today, dead fucking serious clandemic but i can encourage you to listen to it it is one of my very favorite things i've ever done in july after the podcast earlier this year DMC asked to hear what i was working on and it was my upcoming album with web the free range human and he offered without even hearing it yet, because he had my album Figures of Speech from when we first met, without even hearing the song, he liked the samples I was talking about, and he said, oh, you should send me that. I'll write a verse to it. I'm like, holy shit. I was fucking totally blown away. Never expected that. And he brought the energy. Like, his voice sounded great. You know, if you listen to the show, you know he's had his struggles with that. And, man, it was, it was seriously the highlight of my entire rap career. 57 years ago was the beginning, the intro, son of Byford, he was born, they gave him Mike to rock upon, throughout the town, he was known, he searched for Mike to call his own, in 82, he took a test, he stood out above all the rest. So like back to back between the Clandemic album in June, and then the song Spotlight with DMC and Webb coming out in July, just back-to-back -back milestones for me. And uh, couldn't be prouder to work in the company of these absolute legends and pioneers. Now, if you don't already know, my Batman show that I mentioned, the Bat Fanatic podcast, started our third season. We review comics, movies, and cartoons. Co-hosts are Evan, I mentioned, uh, from Streetlight Cardiacs, and my rap partner in The Illusionist, as well as Ben from dead fucking serious so uh, check that show out we've uh, had a great time on this new season we're taking a quick break for new year's but we'll be back soon and we have more than 50 episodes i think of back content of us having a ton of laughs while talking about dc comics now while it doesn't feel like it to me because everything's kind of spread out and i haven't performed very much this has really been an epic year for releases and so I might not be selling in the numbers I used to when I was out there on tour and promoting it all the time, but I mean, creatively, it's so satisfying. I'm so fulfilled by those things. You know, career bests in punk, in rap, and even in my acoustic covers. So really proud of all this content. Again, go to take92.com if you want to check out some of the music yourself. 2022 was also a big year for shows. My wife and I hadn't attended a show since seeing Good Riddance in January 2020. I believe that was the last one we saw. And so with everyone going back on tour, we vowed to make up for lost time. We called it our year of bucket list shows. I was able to see, some with her, some without, The Circle Jerks and Adolescence, comedian Nate Bargetzi, John Mayer, Pennywise, Paul fucking McCartney, A Wilhelm Scream, which we opened, 
Bill Burr, negative approach, which we also opened. 96 Bitter Beings, again, the new incarnation of CKY. Check out that episode. The Dixie Chicks, Sick of It All, an agnostic front. The Interrupters, Chris Rock, Louis Black, and Mark Marin. Plus, I had two shows where I had tickets, but they got canceled. Propagandi and the Smashing Pumpkins. And truth be told, I have just been so overwhelmed with uh, other things going on in my life. I really wanted to see those shows, and I bought those tickets very much intending to go, but I was kind of relieved when they fell through, because that's a lot of fucking shows I just listed. I think that's 15 shows all over the place. I mean, that's Eugene, that's Portland, that's Seattle, that's L.A. We kind of went all over the place to see all these acts. We went to Bend, I'm sure there's more that I'm forgetting, but amazing year for comedy. I mean, Nate Bargatze, Bill Burr, Chris Rock, Louis Black, Mark Marin. Holy shit. Great year for punk rock. I mean, so many bands in there. Maybe not the best year for rap. <laughs> and I think that's reflected in my list as well. Not quite as much hip hop. But if you are new to the show, this is what we do every year. We are going to talk about all of the new releases this year, first about 10 honorable mentions, and then the top 10 albums. What you must know is I don't support streaming apps, so every one of these albums is on my shelf. Everything that's on the list is something I physically have, and this weekend I went through and, and looked at everything, pulled everything out, listened to them again to try to make a a ranking that made sense to me. You know, you do the best you can. But, yeah, all this is physical shit. Now, there's some of my honorable mentions that we're going to talk about first that I could not get my hands on for one reason or another. And so we'll start with some of those. First off, Nas, King's Disease 3. When I saw that come out, I thought, well... That's news to me. I didn't know there was a King's Disease 1 or 2. Looking back, I haven't bought a Nas album in about 10 years. Life is good. I thought that was a powerful record. And I have not listened to anything since. There was a bit of a gap for a while. And then when he came back, he was working with uh, Kanye, who was on his MAGA quest at the time, early on in that process. And I didn't want to support that album, so I didn't buy it. And then sort of came out that Nas had beaten his ex-wife, Khalees, which is a huge part to maybe leave out of the entire album that you made, being so vulnerable and transparent about your divorce, an album that really moved me, again, called Life is Good, and then just sort of leave that part out. And so I'm not giving Nas my money anymore, and if you want to listen to Illmatic or whatever, that's fine, but uh, King's Disease 3, uh, I've heard great things about him pushing himself in the craft, and I don't give a fuck. On to the positive. This one totally escaped me. Czarface, Zarmageddon. Now, this is one of my favorite rap groups, if not my favorite rap group today, but they do crank out albums faster than I can really get to know them. You know, at this point in my life, I've not only collected so much music, but written so much music that... It takes me more time, more spins to really digest an album, get to know it. So they've cranked out a shitload of albums. They're fucking great. I love these guys. 7L on the production. 
Inspected Deck, and Esoteric on the Rhymes. They've done collab albums with Ghostface and MF Doom. Fucking fantastic shit. Most of the time, the songs don't even have a chorus. They're just great bars, great beats and rhymes. I'm 100% going to buy this. I went to two record stores today trying to find it. It just uh, slipped by me. So that's my bad. It belongs in the top 10, I'm sure. Haven't heard it yet. Open Mic Eagle. It's a friend, acquaintance, I guess, that I've played with many times in various cities. He has a new album called Component System with the Auto Reverse. This is an album that ironically has a closing song called CD-only bonus track, but wasn't released on CD at all. Mike is one of the most clever lyricists I've ever heard, and his second verse on the single, I'll Fight You, has some amazing multis, these patterns that remind me a little bit of Casual from Hieroglyphics, who's one of my top MCs ever. And Mike is actually rapping on a boom-bap beat which uh, is very rare for him. I've talked to him before, like, hey, did you get the new Pharaohmon? She's like, nah, it's all the same fucking production. I don't care about that shit. Like, he likes the more, I don't want to say avant-garde necessarily, but he likes shit that's a little outside of the box. So I was stoked to hear that, but again, it's not on the format in which I consume music, so you'll have to tell me how it is compared to his classic records that I do enjoy so much. Illogic. He's a multiple past guests of the show two or three times he has a new album called the transition and i love illogic he's also one of the greatest lyricists he's so inspirational to me when you listen to how he puts words together and and articulates his thoughts he's just brilliant and I, i've ranked his albums very highly in past years i went to buy this not too long ago the cd on his Bandcamp, and um, i think it only comes in like packages and there was like a cd poster package and, and it cost like as much to ship the thing as the CD itself, and I was like, oh, I can't afford $30 for a CD right now, and it kind of slipped through the cracks. So I, I haven't heard this one in a year that sort of lacks some real rap bangers. This could have easily taken the crown, but uh, I will have to circle back to it later. I, I, as I mentioned, went to a lot of fucking shows. I spent a lot of fucking money this year. I do my best to keep up on everything, but uh, yeah, 30 bucks for CD I couldn't quite pull off. No effects, double album. This is a single disc, separate album that follows last year's single album. Fat Mike had mentioned at the time, was like, yeah, we were going to do a double album. We just paired it down to this shit. And um, that was a disappointing release after a sort of disappointing release before that. And double album, this new one, it might be a little better than the last, but these two definitely uh, have shared qualities. Like, I'm glad to hear them back at the Blasting Room. Jason Livermore does a fantastic job. You know, his mix work with no effects is some of my favorite stuff, period. You know, if you listen to Coaster or Wolves and Wolves Clothing, you know, those are amazing sounding records. And they went off and did one with uh, Cameron Webb, who I like a lot with Pennywise and Ignite and The Last Gang, but didn't quite work for that no effects album. And I was really glad on a single album they went back to Motor Studios with Bill and Jason from the Blasting Room. And this one, it's the first time I've noticed, oh, they didn't track all the drums there because it doesn't have that sound that you expect from Smelly mixed with Jason Livermore on the boards. You could sort of tell some songs were tracked in different studios, but it does sound very good overall. It's just the songs, man. Ever since they released that song Oxymoronic several years back, it was sort of like Mike getting fascinated with wordplay 
and that becoming like way more important than like the song. And Mike is a genius lyricist. You know, he wrote The Decline. To come up with even musically that kind of arrangement or something like Mediocore, for that band to be casting those stones and then put out stuff like this that's really just, it sounds like a vanity project. Like, I can't tell how much the other members are really involved. In these last two records, they just sound like a solo Fat Mike thing. It's felt for a while now that he's really not trying. I mean, there was a charming sort of in-joke, you know, on Wolves and Wolves Clothing. They opened with 60%, saying the band only gives about 60 or so percent. And that was endearing, because if you see them live, you know, they fuck around and talk a lot, and they make jokes, and, you know, they're just having fun. But the content of the album at that time was so good. It was one of the things that inspired me to start Dead Fucking Serious. You know, only months later in 2006. And so I did take that as a joke. They've always had stupid songs that were really funny, mixed with personal songs, mixed with social commentary. And they never lost that fire musically. But the last couple albums, really, again, I, I point to that song, Oxymoronic, because it was one of the only songs that I felt was out of place on First Ditch Effort. It didn't sound like anything else on it. In the sequence of songs, it was in an odd place. And then they chose that as the single. I was confused by it because it's just a bunch of, you know, like, I'm in a Suboxone ring, you know, like he just names the pharmaceutical products and uh, flipping them around. And I don't know what has pushed him further down this path, but it seems like that's the thing he's on. It's either like repeating himself of like Cokie the Clown style stuff or like, I, I don't think I like me anymore from First Stitch Effort, you know, songs about that now. I, I really liked... The second track on this new album, it's like, I'll always be my enemy. Like, why couldn't I just be a friend to myself? And there's not enough of those gems on the record. And it, it really feels like he's kind of saying the same shit a lot. This is a band I fucking love. They should be at the top of this list. It hurts me. I listen, listen to both this and single album a bunch of times. And uh, it just, it doesn't move me. I will say, though, if you listen to them in reverse order, I think I probably complained last year about the five-minute slog that is the opening song on single album. But if you listen to double album first and then put on single album, it makes sense for side B to open with something like that. It just is a weird way to set the tone for a double release. So, yeah, I don't have a lot of good things to say about it. Just saw an announcement that they're releasing... 10, 10 inches of like the demos or something for their next album. They're going to have another album out a year from now. And I hope that it's better than this one. But, you know, they announced their retirement tour and I was like, that's, that's probably good, I think, at this point. I would love to see that show if it comes through here. But, man, the uh, studio work just does not feel inspired. I mean, how many times have we heard the little opening palm mute E power chord from linoleum, like. I'm going to move on. I don't like bashing bands that I fucking love. I really don't. They set a really fucking high bar. Like I said earlier, covering the decline, coming up with a really great adaptation of that. 
something I've been working on and performing since 2009. You know, that's an important song to me. They have a lot of important albums to me. Again, Wolves inspired me to start my band. I fucking love No Effects, but they're not doing it for me. Next, in my honorable mentions, another one of my favorite bands, The Deer Hunter. D-E-A-R, The Deer Hunter. They have a new album called Antimai. When Thrice sort of started playing more homogenous sounding albums and then actually took a long hiatus, we thought they were breaking up forever. I discovered this band called The Deer Hunter and they sort of filled that gap for like really emotional progressive arrangements and just really powerful music that was a little bit out of the box. And all of their albums flowed together. It was Act 1, Act 2, all the way up through. They were going to do 6, and I think they stopped at 5. But the albums are one connected story, and it's amazing. And Antimai is the first one, I think, in almost a decade since Migrant that's not part of that. And it's incredibly well-produced. Like, everything these guys make, Casey Crescenzo and his brothers on drums, everything they do is self-produced, and each record sounds better than the last one. Each record, the performances are better than the last one. And this continues that trend. It's fucking fantastic. But no matter how many times I listen, there's just something about it that didn't resonate with me. I'm not connected to these songs emotionally, and I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's just too much of like, okay, we're going to do another concept album, and the songs are numbered backwards, and the fucking, it's just like, I... uh, sing a song, man. Like when they did the color spectrum and it was just songs that had styles that reflected the kind of like thrice in the alchemy index. They did that, man. I was all on board. Migrant had nothing to do with anything. I was all on board. Amazing album. They went back to the acts. They did four and five. They're fucking the best things they ever did. Incredible. Hard to follow those. And Antimai, though very good, for whatever reason, didn't hit me. Next up is Russ Rankin. He's a singer from Good Riddance. Album is called Come Together, Fall Apart. And it's his first solo acoustic album that I'm aware of, though I think there's maybe another older one. In any case, he delivers what reminds me sort of of Tony Sly's early solo stuff when it's like almost an MTV unplugged version of No Use for Name songs. You know, Tony was sort of finding himself as a writer, as a solo singer-songwriter guy. And so I feel like this is maybe a transitional album for Russ as well. I'd love to hear him go more in this direction and and develop sort of like we heard also from Greg Graffin. You know, his solo albums only got better and better in time. Uh, There's a few standout tracks like Babel and Abolish the Senate. A lot of songs could go very much on a Good Riddance album, sort of like when you would hear his other band Only Crime and once in a while, they'd be like, ooh, that song could have been a good written song. Or you'll hear a good written song, you'll be like, ooh, that could have been an only crime song, you know. And so uh, I just want to hear him keep going in this direction and sort of carve out what he wants to say with it that's different. Because um, it's really well done, but it also just felt like sort of good riddance light. I'd recommend checking it out, but um, I wouldn't put it in the same category as good riddance. That's just one of my favorite punk rock bands that can pretty much do no wrong. So uh, high bar to try to meet uh, with an acoustic guitar, but um, well done. And again, props to the cast of The Blasting Room. The whole crew worked on that record, and it sounds fantastic. I want to talk about a friend of mine from here in Eugene, Oregon, Ender One. His album is called The Last Few Years. He's a past guest of the show. 
And we've played a lot of shows together. You know, always support when one another has a new album out. But I have to be transparent when I talk about him because while that's true, I'll admit that he, and there are a few others, but the amount of fans and attention that Ender gets versus the amount of tours and, and albums and stuff is a big point of envy for me. That's an insecurity on my end. I acknowledge that. There's a couple people I know that whenever they come back, it's like a big deal. And I'm like, where did these people come from? <laughs> like, <laughs> we played all the same uh, shitty shows, and then I went out there and grinded and grinded and grinded and cranked out all these fucking albums and stuff and all these tours, and it's like, they didn't, and their audience grew, and I don't know why that is. You got to know that when I talk about this, with the critical lens that I am just also simply jealous. I like the dude. I went to his release show for this album. He always greets me with a smile, and I love that. And then we had an amazing conversation on the podcast. His history with addiction, my family history with addiction, all that kind of stuff, it was fantastic. Now, this album continues the theme where he's gone more and more personal with each release, and I really respect the unfiltered honesty. He goes deeper into his feelings and just about anyone I could name, but not as deep into researching or backing up the questions raised in these newer semi-political songs, questioning the use of masks and vaccines, even the validity of voting on the song One Heartbeat, both released during critical points of misinformation in our social discourse, including right on the eve of the 2020 election, releasing that song, saying basically both parties are just as bad and I won't be part of it. You know, and that, that really blew my mind at the time. You know, I was releasing a song around the same time that said, the thesis of lesser evils is overplayed when the devil himself has his feet up in the motorcade. Like equating two parties as the same thing on the eve of an election where Trump was a candidate again, you have one party that's endorsed by scores of white supremacists and high-ranking members of the Klan, Don Black, David Duke, I mean, the list goes on. It was ludicrous to me to hear that sort of both parties are the same bullshit, followed with a second verse about how racism is bad. I, I really struggled with that. And another song, Tired Part Two, spins that idea that he was censored for these ideas on One Heartbeat, saying that Google had silenced him for what he was saying. But Google and most social media providers weren't allowing sponsored posts with controversial words like COVID, vaccine, anything like that. It just went against standards and practices for advertisements. I can't make sponsored posts for my band because we're called dead fucking serious. It's the same reason. And I remember seeing him be very upset about that at the time. And I'm like, that's not what, that's, that's not what's happening. It, um, okay. There are a couple bar heavy tracks on the album that are very much like his early stuff, waving sort of the underground flag and railing against mainstream vanity in a lot of rap music. He's still doing his thing. If you've been following him for a long time, 
but it's very clear that his heart is in these vulnerable tracks where he's really just openly speaking his mind. Again, it's insane how raw he can get on these tracks, and I really do respect that. And when you know this stuff was coming out, he was like, yo, what do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And I was like, man, I really cannot get behind some of the messages you're saying here. Like, I, I, I genuinely feel like some of this stuff is, is irresponsible. Like, if you're going to say those things and not follow it up with a real well-reasoned argument or something other than, oh, it's just too much, I can't do it. You know, I, I just, I had a real hard time with that. But he said, dude, that's okay. He's like, I still respect that, don't worry. And I was lucky enough to catch his release show for this album, and there's a problem with the beat, and it cut out while he was delivering this much, which was written for his young son, who was on the cover of the album. I was yelling like, acapella, acapella, while the DJ was trying to figure shit out, and he did it. That being one of the most personal songs on the album made it the highlight of the night. It was so much better just to hear him speak that shit than it was to perform the song, and uh, I was really glad that I got to witness that. So shout out to Ender. Again, it's with respect that I talk about these things because we've connected on a, a real level and we've played a lot of shows together and had a lot of fun too. I think that there's a better way. That's what I'm going to say. I hope we share the stage again together. I wish him well. I'm going to move on to a band from Southern California called Skullcrack. The album is called Addicted to the Underground. This is an absolute ripper from Indecision Records. They're an L.A. band that I saw here a few years back. And when I talked to their singer, he recommended that we play it program next time DFS came through L.A. And this album is insanely fast, hardcore thrash metal with great riffs, great production, and just incredible musicianship. I mean, again, they're playing so fucking fast and so tight. It's so impressive. There's even a mid-album instrumental that's an homage to Eruption by Eddie Van Halen. And their guitar player absolutely fucking nails it. He does his own thing, even though it's clearly sort of a, a nod to that and even plays a little lick from Eruption, the little tremolo picking part. He just fucking absolutely makes it his own. It's so cool. And for an album that's like nonstop fast all the time, it was a great sort of like speed bump in the middle of the record slow down for a second and then they come back with like a groovier heavier track afterward before they get into the the fast shit again i, I really like it uh i have only a couple little critiques of this album that kept it out of the top 10 you know this is a really guitar heavy band but the lack of headroom on the recording sort of takes away some of the power of the drums and the drummer is an absolute fucking monster as well and so yeah, very slight thing of like, you want to crank the record up, but you want to you wanna feel it in your chest because they're really punchy sounding drums. And uh, yeah, I just want to get a little bit more room to breathe on that mix. And secondly, this is a record that I would have loved to be involved during the pre-production. Lyrically, it's great and I love what he's saying, but for as perfectly tight as the band is, there's a sort of loose vocal cadence. I don't want to say that it's like struggling to keep up at the tempo or something, but it's not locked in. 
And I would love some of those syllables trimmed a bit and refine just the, the most important parts because they're wordy songs. You know, he doesn't give himself a lot of room to breathe, which is insane if you've seen them live. Like, they're just fucking nonstop. It's like kind of a negative approach. You know, dude, John Brandon just does not put down the mic and he doesn't lose a fucking breath. You know, it's, it's very impressive. But I think the songs would be a little more powerful if there was a little bit of a less is more approach to the delivery. Uh, but again, see them live. They're fucking fantastic. They have great artwork, too, on their merch and on their album covers. And uh, finally... Last thing I'll say is thank you to the band and to Indecision for making CDs because I was quite vocal in the comments and the DMs in the past that I wanted to buy their earlier releases, but this is the first time I can actually buy it and put it on the shelf. I was very grateful that I could get the album. Again, lots of good shit on here. Incredible solos, fucking ferocious energy. It's really fucking good. Uh, Again, it was very nearly a top 10 album. The last one, we're going to switch up the style again. This is a soundtrack. Michael Giacchino, The Batman. You know I'm a big Batman fan. I'm sure I've talked about it before, but one thing that I like to do while reading comics is put on the scores from the movie, whether that's Danny Elfman or Hans Zimmer or, or whatever. You know, even uh, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, he did a score for There Will Be Blood. It's fantastic. It works great when you're just sitting down reading a dark detective story. Now, when the first trailer came out for The Batman, there was a lot of talk over the new music. It's very ominous and very simple to go from a history that was flourishes of strings and choirs, you know, this massive orchestration with Danny Elfman, and then this more sort of muscular, powerful orchestration with Hans Zimmer that sort of even continued through the Snyder universe. Then Michael Giacchino shows up, two notes. Two fucking notes on a piano. Dun, 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 dun. Holy shit. And at first I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Everyone was kind of losing their minds. I remember when the first soundtrack song was released, all the fans that I follow, the fan pages were like, oh my God, this is a masterpiece. I'm like, I don't know. It seems really straightforward. Like, I, I, don't, I don't really get it. But in the context of the film, I really fell in love with it. It sets the perfect mood. I couldn't get out of my head. I went to see that movie five times in the theater because I was just absolutely floored by it. It's my favorite movie of the year. And I said that, (laughs) okay, so maybe Batman 89 is my favorite, but I think that this is objectively the best Batman movie, just for the character. The only real other argument, I think, is Batman Begins that did it incredibly well. But yeah, it's a fantastic movie. And each time I saw it, I would come home even when I'm trying to sleep at night, that fucking song is stuck in my head, you know. I'd be making dinner, and fucking turn to my wife and go, bang, 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 like you just fucking can't get it out of your head. And so I bought the soundtrack. It's actually kind of hard to find. And it's one that I do play when I'm reading comics. Didn't quite put it in the top 10. It's not like a conventional album, but had to shout them out. Those are my honorable mentions. 
Now, if you follow me at Sammy Warmhands on Instagram, you'll see that most of the albums I bought this year were older. So a lot of older metal like Maiden, Sabbath, Ozzy, old punk, Circle Jerks, Black Flag, Agnostic Front, some newer metal, Municipal Waste, Power Trip, shit like that. I'd say only about a third of the albums I bought this year were new releases. I was able to re-listen to everything over the last few days. I'm recording this on the 26th of December, just after Christmas. Really tried to put in the time to make a, a fair critique and try to do some justice in the ranking here. My top 10 albums of 2022 begins with my friend since 1988, 89, something like that, Leo London, former guest of the show. I have to make it very clear. I am hailed as a prolific artist by some who know me. Leo, in the past 14 months, roughly, has released eight records, six EPs, plus a single, and two full-length albums. Now, this list of 10 includes more than 10 because three artists on my list have released two albums. But Leo stands alone because, again, six EPs, a single, and two full-length albums. Leo is one of the best songwriters I've ever met. I've recommended his music on the show. He was one of my guests this season. The first album is called Decoration Day. It was more of like a straight acoustic-based record. I'm going to be honest, the second album, Little America, actually hit me way harder because it has all of the instrumentation that I love about Leo's music because I am a guitar, drums, bass sort of guy. That's how I think. That's what I can play. And I really love the variety of keyboards and synths that gives it this sort of like Brian Wilson quality to me. And so from the first song on Little America, I was hearing that. As I went deeper into it, the lyrics really fucking stood out to me. And there's a couple creative deviations on this record that maybe could have followed The Domestic's last album, Little Darkness, in that it's sort of music I could rap over. Like, they're not quite beats necessarily, but his instrumentation making a more straightforward, groovy kind of track, and I fucking love that. Like, for many years, I think more than a decade, I've sort of fantasized about, oh man, if I could work with Leo, get some of his really cool, quirky instrumentation over some grimy fucking drum loops or something that I make, you know, I would love that kind of collaboration. That'd be super fun. But yeah, there's a couple departures like that on this record. But I want to point out, again, lyrically, this album is superb. There's a song at the end that's called Little America, the title track, that's sort of a long stream of consciousness piece. It's like the most lyrics he's ever written for anything, I think. And I want to read a passage just to give you an idea Cut the ring off my finger, I'll cut the ring off yours. We used to dream together, but we can't sleep much and we don't dream much anymore. 
and it'll never be that good again, and it can't go back to the way it was before, and there's no secret cord. David died, and we whipped and lashed and crucified the Lord, which, if any of you recognize, is a flip of a Leonard Cohen lyric from the song Hallelujah. I I am just moved by this guy's music. I always have been. So much music this year that you can check out. He switched up his approach, as we've discussed, trying to put out more shorter projects and not uh, toiling away at albums that cost a shitload of money anymore and just trying to see how people respond in the uh, streaming world. He's cranked out a ton of music this year. I highly recommend checking it out, especially the most recent album, Little America. That's the 10 spot on my top 10 albums of 2022. At number nine, Darren Miller was a guest on the show this year. He was the frontman, guitarist, songwriter of CKY, a band I grew up on, meant a lot to me. And he started a new band several years ago called 96 Bitter Beings, named after the song from CKY, 96 Quite Bitter Beings. They released an album called Camp Pain, which was for their fundraiser campaign. And it was done in uh, limited quantities. I was lucky enough to get my hands on one. And I really liked that record. It received a little bit of criticism for being kind of DIY. You know, had some programmed drums, I believe. You know, they're questioning the mix or whatever. And I thought it sounded really good and it captured the essence of CKY and, and everything that Darren was about. And he said, we got two albums coming. So we got Campaign for the supporters and then a more traditional follow-up album called Synergy Restored. And that was fucking years ago. Like, that might have been like four or five years ago at this point. I'm not sure. When Synergy Restored finally came out this year, I believe it was on Nuclear Blast Records. They made a big push. I got to see them live. They did a national tour. I know there's some drama behind the scenes. Like, the drummer was sick. They had a a friend come and fill in for drums on tour, and uh, the show was so much fun. I had a fucking blast, like literally one of the best shows I saw all year. And you heard the names of the shows that I saw this year. Like it was so fun being front row and sing along with that. And then the drummer who was sick, his brother is the bass player. And he was a a great bass player. I loved his tone, which is rare for me because I'm so fucking picky about it. His was great. Watching him do the like tremolo picking guitar parts in unison just with his fingers on the bass. Like I was really, really into uh, his playing and he bailed on the tour just disappeared like a few days after I saw them and uh, quit the band never came back and no nothing and so I know they've had a little bit of drama but the album is solid they released the first song track one as the single it's called Vaudeville's Revenge it's got all the fucking riffs and that signature guitar tone you know Darren's Embrace the higher elements of his voice. You know, I really like some of the the vocal stuff that he does on the album. I think, if anything, I would compare it to Skullcrack in a way that while everything in the mix sounds really good, the busy guitars, the busy vocals, so it needs more headroom. There's just a little bit too much shit going on, but it's very good, particularly the first half of the album. Very, very strong. You probably have trimmed a little bit from the middle when it slows down a little bit, but it's a strong record, goes nicely with campaign, and 
maintains the essence of a great band that Darren brought to incredible heights with his guitar playing and his songwriting. Not speaking of the remaining members of CKY, because I have very little knowledge or interest in what they've done without him, I am so happy that we have 96 Bitter Beings and a new outlet for Darren. And I really hope that uh, while they're figuring out their lineup, that he's working on new songs. I think he's still got every bit as much the chops as a guitar player and, uh, and as a showman. I mean, I had a great time just watching him fucking headbanging, absolutely shredding at the same time. And I, I was front row. He's playing like inches from my face. Like I had to move my head so his headstock wouldn't hit me right in the face at one point. I was that close, you know, seeing the precision. And Ken is a fantastic lead guitar player. You know, he does the Van Halen solo on their Beat It cover. Michael Jackson just destroys. So see this band next time they're on tour, support the album, and we'll hope to see more of them in the future. At number eight on my list, off, O-F-F, exclamation point. They have a new album, Free LSD, which not my kind of title. (laughs) Admittedly, when the single dropped and they were talking about this documentary movie thing and i couldn't quite figure out what they were going for conceptually they lost their rhythm section that was so fucking good and they have new band members and something just felt different because they're a very straightforward meat and potatoes hardcore band you know if you listen to the first four eps from like 2010 or whatever it is keith doing circle jerks keith like it is very stripped down And by the second full length, it was a little more Sabbath-y in the guitars. Dimitri, the guitar player, is a fucking phenomenal musician. I loved the elements he was bringing. The drummer at that time started bringing in a little more technical shit and like odd grooves, like not the way your typical drummer would respond to that guitar riff. It's very interesting. And so... Me not knowing what to make of this new stuff, uh, I didn't get to it right away. I just got it for Christmas, actually. I got it yesterday, and I've listened to it three or four times. And aside from some transitional like segues between some of the songs and I believe at the very beginning and very end of the record, those moments sound like the Mars Volta. Delaus in the Comatorium or Francis the Mute, those kind of weird, noisy, all kinds of instrumentation that is not the band members playing. So that threw me at first when I was like, it's fading in and what the fuck is this? And then as soon as the music starts, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's the band I love. And the new rhythm section is fucking killer. Keith is doing Keith. Dimitri's got his awesome fucking guitar riffs. The production uh, sounds just as good, if not better, than the last one. That was really the only thing that I didn't love about the first four EPs is that the music was great, but because they were intentionally going old school, it's the kind of thing that if you crank it up, it's a little bit abrasive on the ear. And um, their last album sounded fucking great. It was really well produced while still sounding like, I don't know, 
Not like uh, we recorded everything in a weekend because we're a punk band and we only had 50 bucks, you know, not like that. But uh, yeah, it still had sort of analog characteristics, I guess, 70s amplifier kind of sounds, but done in a really um, clean way. And this album continues that. I'd say it's even cleaner. I'd love to compare them actually and do an A-B as to how they sonically change between albums. But that's what I geek out about. I didn't sit down with the lyrics yet on this one. If it is all about LSD, then I don't really care to read the lyrics. But great shit, straight up punk rock. I recommend it. I don't have much else to say. Something I just got and I'm still getting to know. But this is the good shit, my friends. Next up is number seven on my top 10 albums of 2022. This is a collaboration between Danger Mouse, the producer from Gnarls Barkley, and Black Thought from The Roots. It's just called Danger Mouse and Black Thought Cheat Codes. I was really excited when I heard about this because Black Thought, I've been saying since about 2010 or 11, after Idea died, when people would ask me, I remember Sadistic specifically asking me outside of a show in Portland, Oregon on the sidewalk. He said, hey, who's the best rapper alive? I said, Black Thought. That's what I was playing in the car was The Roots. And he laughed in my face. And I was like, all right, sure. And sure enough, the years redeemed me. And after his legendary fucking 10-minute freestyle or whatever, and he'd been popping up with more and more features over the years, that he's actually now respected as one of the very fucking best, most elite lyricists around. Now, I'm a fan of Gnarls Barkley, and I'm a fan of the Chili Peppers album, The Getaway, produced by Danger Mouse. And I was a fan of the Grey album that was his breakout where he remixed Jay-Z's Black album. That said, you have an elite class lyricist on songs that are more lo-fi than I prefer. A lot of the beats are made from samples that sound like they're about 60 years old, which is great. But they make no attempt to really beef it up at all. You know, like if you listen to a lot of early hip-hop records, you know, got amazing sample choices. But, you know, they didn't quite have the mixing with their samplers and stuff back then to make them sound as good as they do now. So for an album to come out in 2022, that aside from one song, I think it's the second to last track, it's featuring Conway, that song actually has a big fat fucking snare. But that's really the only thing that's lacking to me. It has great grooves and really cool sonic textures on the whole album. But, you know, you crank it up on the stereo and it, it doesn't really, like, hit you in the chest like I want a good rap album to. And I've always wanted him to do more solo shit. Because on the Roots albums, they've got so many other people. There's always so many vocalists on a Roots album. I didn't even get the last one, like, Then You Shoot Your Cousin or whatever, because I was like, dude, he's barely on this record, and he's the reason I'm coming. He's the selling point. And he started putting out streams of thought, his solo stuff, and it was only streaming shit. So I, you know, I heard whatever was a single, a music video or something, but I didn't get my hands on it. I was very excited about this. The bars are great. And, uh, you know, musically, it's good. Mm, It's just short of being like one of those fucking awesome, you know, real memorable, transcendent kind of records. Like it's a, it's a really good collaboration between these two people 
Lyrically, it's amazing if you sit down with the Genius app while you're listening to the album. Man, he's on a fucking another level. It's great. But didn't quite hit my top five. I wanted it to come with that energy. You know, I needed Quest Love to come in and lay down the beat over the top of that uh, before it would really get me. Actually, I'll say this. I had a friend who would play me the roots sometimes. And I'd be like, I don't know. This is just like real laid back, like jam kind of shit. Like, I don't get it. You know, and then it wasn't until years later I heard 75 bars from Rising Down. It's a hard-ass beat. And Black Dot is going in. And there's no chorus. There's no fucking break. He's just going in. He just annihilated that beat. And from then on, I was a Roots fan. And I bought every album after that. But that's the thing that gets me. If you can match his fucking brilliance with the high energy production that i like that's what gets me so i guess uh yeah it just uh didn't quite punch the way that i wanted but it's got some great lyrics it's maybe not as memorable hook wise as a roots album either but lyrically it's phenomenal it's a fucking master class so i would check it out for that reason alone if you're a rap fan check out cheat codes Number six on my list is a band that's never appeared on one of my lists before, Municipal Waste. The album is called Electrified Brain. I am a new fan of this band. I bought three or four of their albums in the last year or two. Shout out to my friend Brian Crabaugh from the Boston Docks Oyster Boys back in, what, 2001, 2002. We used to play shows together. And he did the artwork for one of their albums. I think maybe it was The Last Rager. I can't remember, but uh, I was surprised to learn that when I opened it up. But they're a band that is um, kind of a joke band, lyrically. Like their music videos are just having a house party and fucking shit up, basically. And it's funny. It's whatever. You know, they're sort of a parody of like the 80s heavy metal parking lot shit. But musically, oh my fuck. Classic thrash riffs, front to back, high energy vocals, a lot of what kept me from getting into more metal over the years, because Metallica is my favorite band, but it was vocals. Like, there wasn't enough James Hetfields out there to be a charismatic voice on top of this awesome, crazy music. And so I generally was not a fan. It was either like, over the top, ridiculous shit, or it would be like, throaty screaming like fucking there's no passion in that it's just a fucking sound effect it's bullshit now municipal waste this is the perfect combination man of the fucking thrash riffs and the speed and the energy that translates to the vocal as well it's just about bullshit and so in stark contrast to cheat codes where the best thing on that album is black thoughts lyrics i sat down with electrified brain and read the lyrics for the first like two or three songs, I'm like, you know what? I like it better when I don't know what it's about. <laughs> I'm just going to close it <laughs> and enjoy the songs. But yeah, this production-wise is what I would say that Skullcrack and 96 Bitter Beings could benefit from because it's got a little bit more of almost like a, you know, like a, like a pop mix balance where the drums and the vocals are right out front. It doesn't fucking lack guitars by any means. It's a fucking riff monster of a record. It's just a perfect balance. I love the way it sounds. I love the songs, and it just blazes by. It's a great album to put on when you're driving around town and getting shit done, 
unless you're, you know, prone to road rage like I am, then maybe it gets you a little fired up. But I fucking love it. It's great shit. We are now entering the top five. At number five, Jack White also released two albums this year. The first was called Fear the Dawn. The second, Entering Heaven Alive. This first album I put so high on my list, even though I don't love every moment of it, because I had a physical reaction to this music, unlike anything that I've heard all year. When the first song comes in, I am like standing up immediately, fucking rocking out in the house with my cats. Like, holy shit, if that comes on in the van, cranking that shit up, fucking Wayne's World, bob your head. Like, it is the funkiest, hardest, biggest fucking sounds, an amazing experiment. Like, I did a record that came out in 2013 called Asshole Extraordinaire. And my goal of that record had nothing to do with songs or lyrics. It was simply to come up with the biggest, nastiest fucking sounds that I could. And so I would come up with just these little sample ideas and replay them into guitar riffs. We would layer and layer and layer and layer. And because I had been making hip hop for a while, like I had drummers come in and they were sort of playing groovier parts. And so when the music was done, I was like, I don't know what to do with this, but kind of rap over it. And it was a weird project. But the point I'm trying to make is I was trying to come up with the biggest, most insane fucking sounds that I could find. And this album, Fear the Dawn, is exactly that. Mine was more in like a fucking Nine Inch Nails, Smashy Pumpkins, like million distorted guitar layers sort of way. And this record is groovier, funkier, different than that, but it's just explosive in that same sort of way. And it really, really hit me. Like I immediately, I'm talking like first weekend I had this record, maybe first day, I came out here to the studio and I started chopping up a couple of the songs and making beats out of it. So I was like, I really fucking want to rap over this. And uh, now that I say that, I'm going to have to go back and um, find those, actually see if I finished them or if they're good enough. But man, incredible fucking grooves and sounds on this record. It's so much fun. There's a song with Q-Tip from a tribe called Quest. Man, check this out if you're a fan of his at all. Again, maybe not on the level of songwriting, but sort of in a Mars Volta way as well, like maybe Amputecture or something like that, where it's hard hitting, the songs sort of weave in and out of each other with feedback and do creative things. And it's very fucking cool. Fear the Dawn, highly recommended. He followed that with a complete contrast, Entering Heaven Alive is very stripped down acoustic bass. You know, it's got full instrumentation, but it's very acoustic bass. And then it closes with what's called a gentle version of one of the songs from Fear the Dawn. So sort of like the unplugged remix, if we're going to circle back to that. And I like that a lot. It's more the kind of thing you'd expect from him. I guess the last few records were more of that. 
hard funk influenced songwriting but again it's more just like pop song structure jack white singer songwriter what you would think of like his solo album might be it's good shit i like it but fear the dawn man that gets me fucking moving that makes my neck hurt that's the kind of record the fear the dawn is so i decided it would be much easier with each of these artists that released two albums at a time to talk about them both at once so I didn't inflate this list and drag out the show for three fucking hours. Number four. I don't know, to be honest, it's very hard to rank these. I don't know if this is a number four or a number three. But right now, I have it sitting at number four. This is one of my favorite punk rock bands to come out in my adult years, in the last 20 years. A Wilhelm Scream. Lose Your Delusion. That's the name of the album. It's their first since Party Crasher that came out, I think, in 2014, right about. So it's been a long time. I had Trevor Riley on the show to talk about it, and DFS got to open for them when they came through Portland on the Lose Your Delusion tour. And it was probably the best show, the single best show, that we've ever played. We had an absolute great time with them. I remember standing on the side of the stage and Trevor dedicated their song Apocalypse Porn to us. And that made my fucking day even more than already the love we were feeling that night. Grateful to those guys for being so cool, not only to come on the show, but to let us play the show and be so fucking rad. Everybody on that show was rad. The dude from Lawrence Arms was there, fucking Make War. It was just an incredible night. The album is both a continuation of Party Crasher. This is a band that, with each album, there's a clear evolution in subtle ways. It's not like AFI, where like every album it's like, oh, that's a jump, oh, that's a jump, oh, that's a jump. And then by that one, if you compare it to the first one, those bands don't really have anything in common. Like, they're still playing shit off the first record in their set that blends perfectly with the brand new songs. But there's stuff in the middle that could have come off Party Crasher. And then there's other shit that is a little more experimental. And I'll admit to you, at the first time that I heard it, I was like, okay, this guitar part has been going for a minute and a half. And yet all these fucking albums before, they just explode. They start immediately. There's no intro. There's no nothing. And so I was like, what is with this long-ass fucking intro? And then when I interviewed him, Trevor had this powerful story about what inspired him to play that piece and that he just left it from the original moment in which it was played, the demo version, that's what you hear on the record. And that's so fucking cool. And they're trading off vocals more. And even Nuno was singing differently when he is on the mic. There's a lot of things on here. Will I say that this is my favorite Wilhelm album? No. I still think I would leave that to career suicide, followed very closely by Party Crasher. I don't know. They could be interchangeable. Like I said, this three and four spot on this list, hard to say. But one of my very favorite bands doing what they do well and challenging themselves in the process. You can tell they're inspired. You can tell they're excited. They didn't just come back because they felt like they owed us another record. They came back because they had spent a great deal of time on something that was important to them, and it shows. So... I highly recommend this album if you're a fan of melodic punk rock, you know, melodic hardcore, incredible musicianship 
one thing I took for granted in this band was the drumming. And seeing them live, it became very clear to me how important that is in the band because they're a very guitar-heavy band and they're a very vocal-heavy band. There's very few breaks, like I said about Skullcrack. There's always singing, always singing. And when you're able to just sort of use your eyes to focus on each band member, I was really blown away. There's something about seeing a band live. You can understand them in a different way than you did before. And I was introduced to this band live in 04, but all the years in between, the 18 years in between, I only knew them from their records. And so it was really cool to experience them live again. And I think it made me appreciate the album more too. But I think it's good shit. I've got it signed up on my CD shelf. Highly recommend it in my number four spot, a Wilhelm scream, Lose Your Delusion. At number three, this is another band that released two albums this year, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. First was Unlimited Love that came out in the spring, and then in the fall, Return of the Dream Canteen. Now, Chili Peppers are a band that's easy to make fun of. I see memes about them. People have always made jokes about them, musicians that I know. There's the running gag that all their albums sound the same, and Anthony Kiedis only speaks gibberish with the word California mixed in or something like that. You know, he only talks about California, California. But, you know, people giving Tupac shit for saying West Coast all the time. People giving Jay-Z shit for talking about Brooklyn over and over and over and over again. Talking about Marcy over and over and over again. That's what people do, especially when you have origins in hip-hop, which Anthony was always a rapper. He's going to talk about the place that he's from, and that's something that's important to them and a big reason why they sound the way they sound. If you read up on the band, it, uh, so much of it is growing up in L.A. I don't know. Just my way of saying, fuck you guys. There's excellent musicianship in this band. Chad Smith, oh my God. If not for Jimmy Chamberlain, who is a, a one-of-a-kind, sounds like no one, drummer from the Smashing Pumpkins. If not for Jimmy Chamberlain, Chad Smith would easily be my favorite drummer. He has the swing of a funk groove with the power of punk rock. I mean, it's like that John Bonham thing, but he does his own version that I am truly in love with. I love him in Chicken Foot with Sammy Hagar, Joe Satriani, Michael Anthony. You know, I love all the albums that he's guest appeared on from, you know, Dixie Chicks to fucking, I don't know. What I'm trying to say is I love Chad Smith. Flea was on the cover of every bass magazine when I was growing up, right? We know Flea is a God-level bass player. His right hand control is just insane. He's like Rob Trujillo or something. I mean, the man is a machine. John Frusciante is my favorite guitar player. He has been since probably 2004. One of my favorite songwriters. The solo albums that he put out around that era, he put out half a dozen albums in less than a year, <laughs> much like my friend Leo London. And that absolutely changed my perception of how I could write songs as a solo artist. When I was on the verge of losing my band and becoming a solo artist, John Frusciante taught me 
how to do that and how to experiment and change styles and still remain yourself. I have bought guitars because I love John Frusciante. I've seen them live. I still have guitar player magazines from 2006 or whatever that I'm hanging on to just because John was on the cover. So I have a deep love for each of the musicians in this band. And I do think that Anthony has become a great songwriter and a much, much stronger vocalist, particularly if you listen to the last album they did that I mentioned with Danger Mouse, The Getaway. Listen to the vocals on that album and tell me that guy sucks. I, I fucking defy you. <laughs> like, uh, dude has really grown into uh, his voice. You know, the vocals is one of the things that made me fall in love with this band to the extent that I am. Like, on By The Way, the harmonies that Anthony and John produce are just, they're beautiful. So when they came back with John Frusciante, right before the pandemic, they announced Josh Klinghoffer is uh, no longer our guitar player, who has filled in for the previous decade when John left the band a second time. Also was John's right-hand man who played the drums and all kinds of instrumentation on all those solo albums I just mentioned. Filled in for a decade. John said he wanted to be back in the band, so they just told Josh to fuck off. And I didn't like that. He released albums under the name Plural One. I believe he was on my top ten list last year. And I recommend that you check out Plural One because Josh is a brilliant musician in his own right. But John was back. John Frusciante was back in the band. And the pandemic hit. Oh, well, that didn't last long. Probably figured maybe that wasn't going to work out. But no. They recorded something like 50 songs. There are many podcasts hosted by Rick Rubin with the members of the band where they talk all about this reunion and their creative process. The first album that came out this year was Unlimited Love. And while it has the better artwork of the two, something about it underwhelmed me. The first single was called Black Summer. And when I heard it, it felt familiar to me and not in an endearing way, in a like, I feel like I've heard this before. It's sort of like the Bad Religion Pennywise effect. Like, you don't want those guys to change and experiment. You kind of just want that thing they do really well. And most of the time they can deliver that, but once in a while you'll get one from them or a rancid album or something where you're like, eh, yeah, this is kind of, I've heard this. And that was sort of how I felt about Unlimited Love, and I listened to it six times the first weekend it was out. Talked to my friend Danny G from Double Dragon and talked to my friend Gradient. You know, we all sort of had mixed feelings like, wow, John's back. That's cool. They're back to that sound. But it was not quite hitting. And I liked it more and more each time that I heard it. And I liked it even more again when I heard the interviews. Because songs that I would interpret as just bullshit, White Braids and Pillow Chair, for example, I was like, that's some weird Anthony shit. And then on the podcast, he tells this beautiful story. And I was at a cafe, and I see this elderly couple. The man has long, white braids, and the woman has brought a couch pillow from home to support her back or whatever while they sit down in this cafe. And they had this, like, loving conversation that he was just sort of eavesdropping on at the table next to them. And he took this very simple, mundane kind of moment that he found beauty in and wrote that into a song that immortalized it. 
So while at first glance, I heard this and I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Then I hear the story later and I'm like, oh, okay. I'm a real fucking literal guy. So if you give me a Kurt Cobain lyric, I'm going to be like, I don't fucking know, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. And Anthony is kind of of that era of like, yeah, I'm not going to necessarily spell it out for you. It's not going to be under the bridge every time, you know? And so I liked learning more in the podcast. And I found every time I played the record, I found new favorite songs and I liked different parts of it more than I had before. Fast forward a few months Chili Peppers return with Return of the Dream Canteen. Not my favorite title. Not my favorite artwork. Some weird psychedelic trippy shit versus the incredibly clean black background with neon sign on Unlimited Love. And these were all recorded at the same time, written at the same time. And apparently they had their Tour dates booked well in advance, as you have to do, especially for a big-name band like that. It's a lot of moving parts. And they didn't have time to mix the entire double album before the tour. And so while they were fighting to try to get that done, they settled on releasing them separately. Personally, I would have loved to hear the double album version of this. It irks me a little bit that they call Unlimited Love a double album, and Return of the Dream Canteen, a double album. And they talked about how releasing both of them together was just too much. The label was like, that's unheard of. I don't know. And I'm like, guys, calm the fuck down. I know that you're referring to everything like vinyl again, but Stadium Arcadium was a double album in the 90s sense, the 2000s sense of two full-length fucking CDs that, yes, would have been a quadruple album if it were in vinyl. Yes, but stop making shit. Like, that means Californication is a double album. That means Blood Sugar Sex Magic is a double album. Things that were never referred to as such now being called a double album. I don't like it. I think these two could have been a proper double album if the timing had lined up. What I'll say about Return of the Dream Canteen, I didn't have that feeling at all. That feeling of, hmm, I feel like I've heard this before. No, I bought that at House of Records here in Eugene, Oregon. I popped it in the van, and first song, I'm moving. It's fucking groovy. The whole record sounds more inspired, a little more experimental. It was almost like they took the safe tracks and they put them on Unlimited Love for the most part. And then they took the more experimental, exciting kind of tracks and they put them on Dream Canteen. And I kind of love that because if you love what they do, okay, I'm going to give you that. But then if you stick around, we're going to give you some crazier shit. And I really fucking liked the crazier shit. Also, because they had a little more time, Ryan Hewitt did an even better mix on this second album. So not only are the songs better, but the production's better. And for me, that's fucking everything. So... Man, I really, really enjoyed the second record. I liked the single Eddie. I believe that was uh, the first one that we heard from it, which was an homage to Van Halen, who we've talked about various points in today's episode, I believe on Skullcrack, first of all. You know, John playing some finger tap parts. It's interesting reading him in a recent guitar magazine. He talked about how 
he would play it like too Van Halen inspired almost, you know, very intense, very busy, really shreddy guitar parts. And then they would go to record it and he would be playing like understated. And he couldn't quite find the balance between his style and Eddie's style. And eventually he got frustrated and just said, you know what? Hit record and whatever comes out is what it's going to be. And I like that because when you see them live, he improvises like crazy. Dude practices like eight hours a day, no exaggeration, on tour, practices all fucking day, then goes out and plays for two hours. So when you see them live, the solos are always different and they're always exciting. So the last couple albums, last few albums, I guess since Stadium Arcadium that John has done with the band, he's definitely unleashed that side of himself more. The live, unfiltered, guitar side of John has been on the albums and I fucking love that. So Eddie's a good example of that. It's a strong album front to back. I think both records are 17 songs, something like that. Each one I'd maybe cut a song or two. Like there's really not a lot of filler. I think Unlimited Love is solid and I think Dream Canteen is even stronger. So my number three spot is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The next two are fucking tough. At the end of the day, you have to just make a decision, but it's a little bit arbitrary because how do you compare things that are totally different? We're not comparing like, well, this dead fucking serious album versus that dead fucking serious album. It's easier to pick a winner. But I'm going to give my number two spot to my friend Yotam Ben Horan from Useless ID. His solo album is called Young Forever. And this album blew me away. It opens with a very Revolver-era, Beatles-esque, McCartney-tinged song. And then it's followed with a triumphant pop rock song with blaring trumpets and a big chorus that he's belting out in another language, albeit. And we talked about this on the show. Listen to my interview with Yotam to hear a song-by-song breakdown of this album. I was so in love with this record. It's just 10 songs, short and simple. I played it for my parents. They were super into it. They bought a copy of it for themselves from Double Helix Records. And she put in the notes, which is like a note for the recipient, like a gift. And uh, she's like, my son had Yo Tom on the Take 92 podcast, blah, blah, blah. We really like this album. Like, that's, that's very nice. Thanks. But it was in the package when uh, she received it. So little mix up there. Point of the story is, my whole family loves this fucking album. Yo Tom really knocked it out of the park. We talked a bit about his co-writing with The Last Gang that was my number one punk album of last year. He can alternate between intense melodic hardcore of the last Useless ID record to the most quiet, vulnerable songs of Young Forever. And I love them equally. And that's something I really admire. You know, I've spent a lot of years trying to refine my skill as an MC, as a lyricist, first and foremost. And I've also spent a lot of years trying to refine my skill as a punk songwriter in terms of arrangement and in terms of distilling those complicated things into simple lyrics and making them short and effective and things like that. And so here's a guy who's been at it a long time and I can really see the dedication, I can really see the evolution 
between his different albums, and in this case, his different solo albums, and this one being far and away his best work as a solo artist. I don't have any criticisms of it, so I might not have as much to say as I've had on some of these other ones, other than it's melodically beautiful, it's lyrically beautiful, it's heartfelt, it's quiet, it's loud, it's kind of everything in between. I mentioned on the show when I interviewed him that it's very carefully sequenced because you could easily get this wrong where you've got too many quiet songs in a row, too many loud songs in a row. It's a perfect balance. It's a nice little leisurely roller coaster ride through the, uh, the rock songs and the acoustic songs, and I can't recommend it enough. So check out Young Forever by Yotam Van Horen on Double Helix Records. That's my number two spot. One of my favorite things about the show is that over the years, my top 10 list features more and more guests of the podcast, like Darren from 96 Bitter Beings, and like a Wilhelm scream, and like Yo Tom. My number one spot was also a guest on the podcast whose album I have signed hanging up in the living room. This is one of my favorite bands. They came out on Hellcat Records a number of years ago under the leadership of Tim Armstrong's label. They're called The Interrupters. I don't really need to introduce them at this point because they've become so much bigger than I ever expected. The album is called In the Wild. I had a great talk with Kevin Bavona, the producer and guitar player for the band. I really recommend that episode. One of my favorite things I've ever recorded on this show. I had a great time chatting with him. He actually gave me a VIP pass to go see them live on that tour in Eugene. They came through with Floggy Molly. And uh, me and uh, Evan went, and it was a fucking great time. I saw my friend Taylor there. They absolutely killed it. It's always so much fun to see them live. Amy comes out there with a beaming smile, and you listen to the lyrics on this record, the, the lead single, In the Mirror, you know, and she's talking about, like, I always put a smile on my face, but it's like she's going through the motions. She's putting up this image that people expect of her. And so that contagious enthusiasm is also a little bit tainted because now with this very personal album, I hear what she's saying and I wonder like, okay, how much are you loving this moment and how much are you putting it on because, you know, this is your passion and that's what you got to do for it. This is the persona now that you have to live up to. But man, it was a fun show. I was singing along so much. I think I was annoying the shit out of the uh, 12-year-old in front of me who had the, the front rail so I'm singing all the words, and I think they're probably there for Floggy Molly or some shit. But, man, it's a great show. It's a great album. Like I said, it goes very, very personal. The song Raised by Wolves was another single that is maybe my favorite from the album. A lot of powerful stories from Amy's life, and this is very much a vehicle for her catharsis. You know, there are some albums that's kind of a hodgepodge of different themes. But this one starts out with, you know, anything was better than where I was from. You know, there have been elements of this kind of stuff. As Kevin pointed out, 
she would sing as characters, you know, like Jenny drinks, blah, blah, blah. Well, she was really saying Amy drinks, you know. And this one, from what I understand, through a lot of therapy and self-reflection, she'd written a bunch of really personal songs, and they decided to put aside anything that didn't follow this thread. That intrigues me because I want to know if those songs will become anything and what they sound like. But this is a very consistent album thematically where it veers off is sonically because they're going into these like kind of doo-wop shuffles and shit we've never heard them do before. There's like a dub reggae song. There's all kinds of shit on here. And Interrupter's first two records very much that stripped down rancid sound and the third one I felt like whoa this feels a little bit almost overproduced it's like the vocals are really hot everything sounds really slick and clean you know there's a little bit more going on the song's more layering and stuff and the first two really sounded more like a live band and so it took me a minute to get into that one but fight the good fight really became one of my favorites and I had the same relationship with In the Wild because this album, the vocals are fucking maxed out. Like the single, In the Mirror, when the beat drops and she leads into the last chorus, it is like deafeningly loud. If they had multiple mixes of this, they went with the vocal up version and that's what they released for the single for sure because it is fucking loud like they just took the lead vocals and the chorus and they just put another lead vocal right over the top of that just belting that out man and so some of that stuff threw me off at first because like the band sounds so good like these tracks are so well produced by kevin that i was like i want to turn that up and like fucking feel the beat you know like i want to i want to have that uh that resonance that comes from the speakers at a good volume but sometimes with a pop record the vocals are so fucking loud that you kind of can't turn it up like that. And so I had that resistance to it initially. But at the same time, uncovering the layers of the lyrics and what it's about, I think that ironically, you know, where the interrupters started with Amy getting a deal and saying, no, I want a band, almost like a Paramore situation with Haley Williams. No, I want a band. And then by the fourth album, okay, but this is really Amy's record, you know? And, like, the band is killing it. That's not what I'm trying to say. But because the message became the album, essentially, that the lyric is paramount, well, then this album was treated differently in terms of the mix. And you're getting every fucking word, every vulnerable moment that maybe she was afraid to say on the past album. And every defiant statement of like, yes, I did go through that, but you know what? I own that now. It doesn't define me. It helped me become this person that I am today. And when you close a ska punk record with a song like Alien, that's just piano based, that's a total wild card for this band's catalog, but is so sincere and so powerful and again, like Kevin pointed out, we worried about the style, but we figured out that if it's these four people playing the song, then it's still going to sound like us no matter what. And he's right. It's the best closer. I loved, loved, 
loved the uh, closing song on the last album, Fight the Good Fight, Room with a View. It's powerful, it's emotional. It reminded me very much of a friend that I had lost. And this song, Alien, closes the album in an even deeper way that they've never been able to go to this place before without shouting over guitars and all this stuff. It's just, it's so powerful. This feeling of, I'm not one of you, the people I'm around, the others in my gender, whatever it is, I've never felt like I fucking belonged anywhere, right? And I think that's why a lot of us gravitate toward bands, because we have that missing thing. So now we're charged up to create and express ourselves, and we find these other people who have the same sort of checkered backgrounds. I love that they were able to go to this place on this album. There's maybe two songs, because I think this is a 14-track album. And I think because they're taking risks and slowing down, actually, if you see them live, they play old songs, they are fucking slow, just for the record. Like, if you see uh, She Got Arrested, which is like my favorite song from the early albums, uh, you see that live, it's like fucking halftime now. So they are not the like fast ska punk shit that they started with necessarily. But when you take these stylistic departures on the new album, I think it's important to keep up the pace just a little bit more. I think the song Burdens and Love Never Dies, you know, two of the songs with features on the album, at that point, sort of the three-quarter way, do slow it down a little bit. I would love to come out of Worse For Me into Afterthought and then close with Alien. I get really hung up on the sequencing. When I say these things, it's like a creative what-if I like the brainstorming aspect of it, but I really enjoyed this album through and through. They challenged my expectations, much like Wilhelm did, much like the Chili Peppers did, much like Leo London did. There's so many of the artists on this list, much like Off did, okay? Most of the people on this list, they didn't quite give me what I expected from them, and that was the excitement. Because that presents a challenge of, okay, well, what did they give me? And what do I like about that? And what don't I like about that? It makes for a more engaging experience. So that is where I will leave you my number one album of the year. My guest, Kevin Bavona, his band, The Interrupters. The album is called In the Wild. I appreciate you guys that look for these episodes every year that you ask me if it's coming. I love talking about music. That's why I started this show. I love talking about my favorite music. And I speak about things that I'm passionate about with a critical lens because I've seen the best work. I've seen the highs and the lows of these artists that I've followed for so many years. And that is the key. When I was a kid and I'm coming out of elementary school and I'm discovering what became my music, right? I found there's an alternative radio station and you start to hear Green Day and the Boss Tones and Sublime and things like that, right? And as I'm discovering these bands, if you look at the shelves where I buy my CDs, I organize them in the order in which they were bought. 
because I learned very early on in middle school that when I buy a bad religion or a beastie boys that I got to move every fucking thing. And even if you only have 25 or 50 CDs at that age, well, that's still a lot of work. So I could see long-term that wasn't going to be the move. What I would do and what I continue to do is you just add the newest one to the shelf. And so I have an encyclopedic knowledge of my music catalog. If I need to go find Red Hot Chili Peppers, by the way, I can do that in the dark. It's the second CD on the bottom shelf of the far left CD rack. I could tell you that right now from the other room, okay? But if you look at my CD collection in the order in which it was purchased, starting in like, you know, the sixth grade or whatever, there's a big collection of Sublime CDs and then of the Beastie Boys and then of the Bostones and then of Less Than Jacob, Pennywise, Offspring, whatever it is, right? Because as I was discovering the song on the radio, I would go buy the album. And then I loved so many more songs now. I have a whole album and I would play it over and over and over again. And then I would go to the mall after I mowed the lawn for my parents and my neighbors and I had some money to spend. And I would go to Sam Goody or Camelot, Disc Jockey, and I would find any other CD by that artist, anyone, anything that I could find by that same artist I wanted to buy. And so from an early age, probably about 12, I have been the kind of person that I want the creative arc. I want to follow your journey. That's why I like doing this show, because we get to talk about how people became the artists that we know from the record. Where did it start? Where did it deviate? How is it going now? I'm all about the creative process. That's why I'm not as popular, like I talked about being jealous of my friend Ender One or some of these other people that I know, where I'm not a figure of the community. <laughs> okay? You know, I don't go out and hang out. I don't play a bunch of local shows for me. The songwriting, the studio, these are the things that are most exciting to me. So when I get to do this podcast and bring on guests about their journey and how they got here and how they put their songs together and what kind of fucking gear they use and anything like that, how do you produce, that shit's infinitely more interesting to me than going out to another show or you know, being in a fucking cipher or something like that. And it's the same reason that I love doing my annual top 10 albums of the year episode of the Take 92 podcast. Because even though I don't have a scene partner, let's say, a co-host, a guest to interview, it's something that I can just sit down by myself and talk about for two hours until my voice gets hoarse because this is the stuff that I'm passionate about. So again, if I'm critical, it's with love. It's the hope that as a fan, that wearing my producer hat for a moment, I can go, oh, I love the Smashing Pumpkins, but that album, if they had maybe just done this a little differently with the mix, then people would have heard it like the band they're familiar with instead of being like, oh, 
the songs are way different because they sound way different. Like, no, the songs are the same. Listen to him play them acoustic, right? It's just this weird synth pop presentation, right? So whatever it is that I am criticizing, it's done with love because I want the best as a fan, as a listener, from my experience, I want the best for an artist, for a band, as a creator. I just love this shit. It scares me watching the physical media uh, decline, even from the big box stores, after so many of our local stores have closed. Yeah, I do have a great fear. The more I see even independent labels not releasing CD copies of new music, that there will soon come a time where I'm just no longer able to not only buy music, because there have been albums like that where I just nope, didn't, didn't release it in the format that I use, okay, but may also, really will also, lose the opportunity to release music in the way that I always have. Because it's very important to me that when I write something and I record something and I finish that mix and I get the artwork just the way that I want, that it doesn't become a thumbnail floating in the ether compressed to an mp3 that it is something that i can physically hold and thumb through and proudly display on my cd shelf with the other thousands that have meant something to me over the years and so i do fear that there's a time in the not so distant future where i won't even be able to release that for my own music and so right now I'm continuing this tradition to be vocal about the things that I do love and champion those artists and defend the criticisms by uh, people who use words like trash and <laughs> are very quick to be dismissive of things because I think we can have an intellectual conversation about the things we like and the things we don't and I will be here for it as long as I can. So... Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a fan. And if you're a person who buys physical media and goes to shows and buys the merch, thank you for supporting music. The show will return in 2023. That is my guess. I make no promises because I do this show for fun when I can. I really thought I was going to get Cone McCaslin from Sum 41. We had to reschedule that. I really thought I was going to get Pharaoh Monch. We had to reschedule that. I really thought I was going to get Krista Makes from Less Than Jake. And some of these just did not work out. But I've been in contact with many people. I thought I was going to get Lars Fredrickson from Rancid. At a certain point, if you wait too long or if you bug them too much, if you don't play it exactly right, a yes can turn into a ghost. And so that's kind of uh, where I've been at. The scheduling is tough, but I will do what I can to give you another season season 8? fuck yeah I will try to give you a season 8 for 2023 thanks for listening oh one last thing you can catch me live at Gilman Street in Berkeley California February 3rd at the 10 year anniversary of their conscious hip hop night featuring Micah 9 and Jell from Anticon shout out to my friends Double Dragon for hooking me up this will be my first on the road show in three years.